I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women and I am a woman. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. Now, if you're a regular here, you'll know that every month I do a live show on stage at the BFI South Bank in London. But since lockdown, that show has moved online. If you want to check out the MK3D online shows, then just go to YouTube and search the BFI channel, or just go to YouTube and search MK3D. Now, each of those shows is an hour long. They're in a video format, and they're really good fun, so do check them out. But the shows tend to be rather guest-packed, and since we have an hour-long running restriction, we have to cut down the interviews. But here on Kermit on Film, we like to run longer versions of those interviews. Next month, you can hear me in conversation with the great Brian Cox and with director Salvador Simo, the man behind Bunuel in The Labyrinth of the Turtles. But in this episode, we'll hear from comedian Shazia Mirza about her guilty cinematic pleasures. But first up is the great Simon Pegg. So it's a great pleasure to welcome to the uh, virtual online MK3D, the great Simon Pegg. Simon, where are you? You look like you're in space. <laughs> I wish. No, I'm, in my, I'm at my house in my little place where I go to see movies. I thought that was uh, an appropriate venue to, t- to chat to you from. So have you, you've got a movie viewing room in your house? I have, yeah. I, uh, I, well, I figured it was going to be necessary for work. So I uh, put it through the business, yeah. Ob's. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's our, it's our sort of um, our little screening room where we go. It's where I show my daughter all of the, uh, the films that she should be watching. That's fantastic. And what have you got? Have you got like a, like a, like a proper pull-down screen? Have you got it's this, large... Yeah, it's got curtains and it, 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 come, it, it all is automated and you press a button and it, all, it goes dark oh, wow. and the curtains open. It's, it's all the bells and whistles. It, it's based on the ABC uh, cinema in Gloucester where I grew up, where I saw all my formative sort of films. So it's all sort of red and black and, yeah. When, um, when the Phoenix in East Finchley was doing a refurb, they offered to sell me some of the chairs because because uh, I had spent my entire childhood in the Phoenix and it was simply a transportation thing. I couldn't, and it breaks my heart because I could have actually had the chair on the end row on the left-hand aisle that I always used to sit on. It was uncomfortable as all hell. Yeah, but... I would love to have had it. What a thing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Are you missing being in cinemas? Because obviously lockdown is now three months. Are you missing that communal experience? Yeah, I think, and I think that's the key thing that people tend to overlook when they talk about the importance of theatrical cinema it's not about seeing it on a big screen that big screen is just there to accommodate the fact that you're going to watch it with a whole group of people you don't know and that's a, that's a sort of in, a really important function of cinema as a as a viewing experience it's like watching something with a whole bunch of people you don't know and sharing it and i miss that for sure because it's um you know at its best in a full theater when everyone's into it it's just the best 
Do you know when you when you go back to filming in September? Will it be socially distanced filming, or will it be filming as before? Well, it's all exterior stuff. It's all the, the sort of location. This is for Mission Impossible, so um, I guess there'll be there'll be sort of um, procedures, but I'm not sure exactly what that is. I read somewhere that Tom Cruise is building a a huge COVID village. <laughs> but I don't know if that's true. I don't think it is. <laughs> So will you, will you have to go into into isolation when you do your stuff? Because we've heard a lot of stuff about movies being shot by like the entire crew going to isolate yeah. for three months. I was talking to Guillermo del Toro not so long ago, and he was talking about a similar thing, about everyone moving in together for the duration. Well, it might be the case. You know, we start off, it's all overseas location. We start in Norway. And um, so I guess it depends on what their kind of guidelines are and stuff. But it makes sense that we should all kind of... Um, remain together so maybe tom's village is a, is true <laughs> there are there are worse places that you could be isolated than tom cruise's super village in norway i mean i think that's that sounds like a fantastic package holiday it does, frankly. Doesn't it? yeah and what during lockdown have you managed to catch up with any sort of classic movies that you've been wanting to watch but didn't have the time to do yeah well my daughter's 10 so she's sort of at that age now when she can um I've always shown her movies that I felt like she might not see if she didn't have a film fan as a dad. So uh, as a youngster, you know, all the Amblin movies and um, the, the sort of set texts of my childhood. And now she's a little older. We've been watching films like she watched Aliens the other night. We had a little monster rally. We watched um, A Quiet Place, Monsters, Gareth Edwards' Monsters, um, Cloverfield, and then Aliens. Because she's pretty cool with that stuff. She's grown up around film, so she knows that she doesn't get too freaked out by it. But, um, yeah, watching Aliens again was... I mean, I've seen it a lot of times, but it's such a great movie. And I think what's really impressive about it is that it was made... I think, I think it cost $19 million in 86, whenever it was made. And even adjusted for inflation, that's about 39 now. So that's a really big, exciting, smart kind of blockbuster made for less than $50 million. You just wouldn't get that these days, you know. Did you, which version did you show her? Did you show her the extended version with all the backstory about Ripley losing the daughter? Or did you go for the, the version that, that opened in cinemas? Just the, just the theatrical. And I haven't, I haven't, she hasn't seen Alien yet because that's a little bit, I think that's a little bit more psychologically... Uh, disturbing. It's more. It's a slasher film, isn't it? So I think I'm saving that one. So I did have to. It was a little bit. It, it galled me a little bit to go straight to Aliens, but um, we did Terminator and Terminator Two last weekend. And what was oh, what wow. was great about that was that she was fully there for the twist of Terminator Two because she knew nothing about it. So she assumed that the Terminator was the bad guy and the handsome sort of skinny guy was going to be the goody. So she went. She went through that, and I was, it was so great to vicariously share that with her. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, I, it, I think it's the, the, one of the best experiences is showing films you love to your kids. I, I watched Exorcist with my son, who's you know he's now old enough, yeah. and, uh, and I was terrified because I was terrified that he wouldn't like it or, or wouldn't <laughs> get it or something. Yeah. And so we watched it. I said, you have to do the whole thing from beginning to end, no, you know, no messing around all the yeah. way through. And then we watched it. And at the end of it, he went, well, it's brilliant. And I thought, that's it. We, we can stay father yeah. and son, because otherwise <laughs> yeah. we would have had it. <laughs> it's nerve-wracking, isn't it? Because you, you feel a certain responsibility for the film and your own taste. 
And so when, you know, when you do throw them a curveball, it's a little less kind of mass entertainment and a bit more thoughtful. You kind of want them to get it. And um, yeah, and it's such a relief when they like it because you think, oh, thank goodness, I'm validated. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a, couple, there's a couple of films I'm terrified, but there's an old, there's a 70s movie called Jeremy. There's a love story that I love that everyone else yeah. hates as far as I can tell. <laughs> and I'm terrified. They keep saying, come on, Dad, show us Jeremy. And I, I don't want to because I, I don't think I could face the disappointment of them going, it's all right, it's not very good. Yeah, and it, yeah, just, yeah. it kind of really breaks my heart. Um, as far as Aliens is concerned as well, I made a doc about Aliens and I interviewed Carrie Henn, you know, Newt, and yeah. uh, who's you know, grew up. She didn't, she didn't want to act afterwards. She did it. She loved it. That was it. And then she went on yeah, and she got, yeah. you know, got a proper job. And, um, and she, I said, do people come up to you still and say, they mostly come at night. Mostly. <laughs> mostly. And she said, <laughs> she said, yeah, I, the word mostly is the word that I hear more than any other word. <laughs> That's brilliant. I remember I had a I big conversation that. on the set of Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, and it was um, with Chris McQuarrie, who had come in to do some rewrites, and they had been talking about um, killing off uh, Ethan's wife, Julia, who appears subsequently in some of the other movies. And, um, and he changed that. And we, I remember having this discussion about that with him because I thought that was a better idea because I, I, I will never show Tilly Alien 3 unless she asked to see it because killing Newt and Hicks completely retroactively ruins Aliens because all she goes through for them and then suddenly they're just arbitrarily... And it might have felt like... I know Fincher was probably being sort of like, I'll wipe the slate clean kind of thing. But it just... As far as sequels spoiling their predecessors, that one, that's a crime, that. Killing those two characters after everything Ripley did. Sigourney Weaver told me that she, that she went to see the, the Alien 3 preview with uh, Carrie Henn. And that in that one moment when you see Newt dead yeah. it's not her obviously but she put she put her hand over Carrie Hen's eyes <laughs> to sort of protect her which I thought was really lovely and it's so it's so brutal because as you say we've got the family unit back together again at the end it's lovely and they're they're dead by the time the opening credits are exactly. so I mean, you've got a couple of films coming our way um which I haven't seen or I've seen the trailers for um tell us first about Inheritance because uh creepy scary trailer yeah Inheritance um was a, is a kind of it's it's a it's a thriller. I really like this screenplay because it was very talky, and um, and it felt a little bit. There were, the scenes between my character and Lily Collins' character Lauren were, were felt quite theatrical, and you don't get the chance to do that much in cinema, particularly the stuff I've been doing of late, which is always, you know, shot very incrementally, and I'm you know I'll say go left, go right, and then scene ends. Um, but this was is sort of chewy, almost a two hander about a girl who inherits this uh, terrible secret from her father, this this guy who's been held captive on their property. And, um, yeah, it was a really fun shoot. We made it in Alabama, of all places. And um, my, my, I did about 20... No, it took about 12 days to shoot my stuff. We shot in a bunker set, which was in a paper factory in Birmingham, Alabama. And, uh, and it was a hoot. It's quite sort of schlocky and... Uh, and yeah, it's fun. It's a fun movie. A heart attack. I mean, how'd that even happen? Dad was in better shape than either of us. Lauren, there's something I need to discuss with you. What is it? Your father left this for you. 
and you alone. Does any daughter really know her father? And you've also, you've, you've worked fantastically with Juno Temple, of whom I am a huge fan, although this says something about our, our respective ages, that I'm friends with Juno Temple's dad. Oh, yeah, of course. So, <laughs> you know, so, you know, but I think she's a fantastic actress. Tell us about that project. Yeah, that's Lost Transmissions, which um, was a film I shot in Los Angeles in 2018. And it had a, its premiere at the uh, Tribeca Film Festival in 2019. So, you know, to get it... Obviously, with indie films, they take a lot longer to emerge because they have to get distribution and what have you. So it's finally getting its, um, its sort of uh, release now here in the UK. And it was a film I was really, really happy to do. It was a script that came my way that I was surprised to get it. It was it's a it's a drama about a schizophrenic music producer who sort of comes off his meds, and um, and gets lost in LA. and And Juno's character Hannah sort of tries to save him, but I I don't often get sent scripts like that because I'm known for doing comedy. And um, I was thrilled that Catherine O'Brien, who was the writer director, she sent it to me. And it also dawned on me that I'd never made a feature film directed by a woman in in however long I've been making them. And that felt remiss, even though it's not my fault, other than my being part of the patriarchy. Um, and I, I thought, I need to do this, you know. And it was um, it was an amazing experience. I went from shooting Mission Fallout, which was, I think, 108 days, to um, Lost Transmissions, which was about a 20-day shoot, all shot, handheld, on location in Los Angeles. We had no, we had one dolly shot in the whole shoot. Uh, the DP was lighting it with these sort of like LED strips and stuff. It was all very um, guerrilla style, but it was it was a fantastic experience and a chance to just flex some different muscles, you know. And who did you did you look to anyone as a model for your role? Because I was looking at thinking, you know, well, I always think of Joe Meek, who I think is the kind of, you know, the great troubled music producer. But was there anybody that was particularly in your mind when you were doing? Well, it's based on a real person who I met and spoke to and. Um, a friend of Catherine's and she wrote, she wrote the screenplay based on this experience that she had had with this person. And so I was able to kind of meet the person who the film was based on. And I also went and met schizophrenics and, um, and did as much research as possible. I didn't want to wing that wing it. Do you know what I mean? I think it's, it's quite easy to play crazy and, 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 um, schizophrenic schizophrenia is a very specific condition. So I wanted to walk into the shoot knowing exactly what I was supposed to be portraying. So, um, yeah, I, I did a lot of research in that regard. And how did you find it, Simon? Was it was it rewarding? Oh, I loved it. Yeah, I really, really loved it because it. You know, when you're making a film like that, you're you're you work from the beginning of the day to the end of the day. You're never back in your trailer waiting for setups and stuff. You just you're running the whole time. It was a it was a, a real chance to to do something different and to um, learn a new sort of process. Um, and working with Juno was great. Juno's really, really fun. And we hit it off straight away in terms of our, our sort of um, chemistry, which was really, really helpful because the two of them, the two characters in the, it's not like a romance between them, it's a friendship. Um, and in that, it really sort of mirrored mine and Juno's relationship in that respect. So it was, yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. I'd like to do more. I just don't see you as just being like a cog in a big machine. Darren, I love her. I love her. I want her. Can I have her? You know, when a singer finds a writer they think sounds like them, they hang on for life. Come on, I want my next hit. Up here, this is Wayne Kevin. 
scare people. I don't see me. That sounds so good. That's nice. I like that. We've constructed like a whole made-up world, and it stops us from seeing everything how it really is. Stop thinking. What are you feeling? If you can put that into your work, then you're gonna come up with something really great. We asked you to think of two things, I don't know whether you managed to do this, which was a guilty pleasure movie and a movie that you kind of turned to that inspires you. Did you have a chance to think about yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. These? I think my, my, guilty, okay. my guilty pleasure isn't Howard the Duck, which is yours. <laughs> I love Howard the Duck. I won't, I'm, I'm sorry, I won't hear a word about Howard the Duck, okay? And people, people get this whole thing, they go, what is it with you and Howard the Duck? You go, it's Howard the Duck. They go, it's a bloke in a duck suit. You go, yeah, it's Howard the Duck. I always kind of, I slightly blanch at guilty pleasure because it kind of, in, it, it does imply that you're ashamed of that, like, and, which I'm not, and neither of you have, have Howard. But, um, but th those old sort of, Italian sub Romero horrors made by Lucio Fulci in the sort of late seventies films like, um, um, let sleeping corpses, which I think was called living dead at the Manchester morgue here and, um, zombie two and the beyond. They're really badly put together, shot in Italian, <laughs> dubbed badly into English, really quite sort of, you know, terrible, pacing and but there's something about them which I just quite love I love their sort of amateurish the glee the horrific kind of gore which looks very you know dated now um I do love those films look it's not my fault sergeant if Christ and saints are out of fashion Satan's all the rage these days listen boy you keep getting on my nerves and I'm going to give you another kind of house to look after one with lots of bars in the windows Better reinforce that door. Take the lamp. I can just imagine the sergeant's face when he finds out. Craig, can you hear me? Sergeant, they're dead people trying to kill me! Message for you. Look. I know it sounds silly, but is it possible? I mean, could a film fail to catch an image for any reason? Well, a ghost, maybe. Were you a, were you a video nasties watcher when you, because you're younger than me, I think. I'm How, 50, I just are you in your, Okay, so you are younger than me. Were you, were you in the right, were you old enough to be somebody who went and got video nasties from the video store? Or was that or were you too young I for think that? It was probably a couple of years older than me. The sixteen and when that happened, when that whole thing happened, um, I remember it happening. I remember hearing about Dawn of the Dead, for instance, and Evil Dead. These great movies, you know, that were that were lumped in with these lesser um, sort of efforts. Um, but my first videos that I that I rented were things like American Werewolf and The Howling and um, uh, The Thing. You know, they were the and they're not so much video nasties. They're they're classics. But no, I didn't see Driller Killer or Death Trap or any of those <laughs> those real those real you know classics of the genre. I just remember that was how I, you know, discovered Fulci was because they would always have the most garish yeah. covers and the most garish titles and. And you, you know, you knew that ten minutes into them, somebody was going to vomit up their entire <laughs> intestinal yeah. system. 
you know, and, and it was it was just a promise. And I remember just thinking that's that's what horror films ought to look like. The kind of thing that makes you almost want to run yeah. out of the room because you. I remember reading about that very scene in my Encyclopedia of Horror, which I had as a kid, and it had pictures of some of these films in. And they were this, 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 this rare kind of terrifying prospect of these films where somebody would like have their eye impaled on a splinter or throw up their guts like that, you know. And I was reading about it just thinking, and I remember the, the, the description of Dawn of the Dead was um, uh, a shopping mall which becomes a wash with blood. And that, just that sentence made me think, I've got to see this movie. Um, yeah. but, the, but the difference is that with the, with the Romeros and with Dawn of the Dead, you know, there's, there's, there is an awful lot of thematic substance. With the Fulchies, with the zombie flesh eaters, it is a matter of, I want to see the spike of wood stick through somebody's <laughs> yeah, yeah. eye. And then they've released cut versions when, it's, when the spike didn't. And you go, no, I've, tuned I, in. I've been here for an hour. That's right. <laughs> I've been here for a whole yeah. hour. I need to see the spike going into it's somebody's so true. eye. And it feels to I, me like it's a kind of misunderstanding of what made Romero's work great. It's like somebody saw it and thought, oh, okay, it's about this. And it's not about that. It's about Romero's work is far more sort of, you know, nutritious, I think, uh, uh, intellectually. But Fulci was just like, no, it's all about guts and eyeballs, and which is fine. Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at Shaun of the Dead, it's oh, Romero. Totally, yeah. Um, and that's, you know, and because it has thematic substance and it has pathos and friendship and meaning yeah. and, you know, I don't think I can, I can kill my dad and my best friend, and the, you know, all yeah. that stuff. Whereas Fulci would just be, yeah, pass me the axe. <laughs> yeah, <That's yeah>. <laughs> no emotional repercussions whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a great choice. What about the movie that inspires you, the movie that you go back to? Um, I think rather than sort of choose one that, that I saw as a child, which I think you know, um, the obvious ones which would have uh, informed me as a youngster, I'd say Raising Arizona, the Coen brothers, which I saw as a student and it and it really kind of educated me in terms of how a comedy film can be um, so much more than just the script. It can be the way that the camera moves. It, it can be, I think for me and Edgar actually, our sort of understanding of of foreshadowing and paying off and, and, you know, having reflections in the, in the dialogue and in the imagery. Um, it's a real masterclass in comedy filmmaking. And I think for me, just one of the best films ever. It's, it's up there in my top five for sure. Just, and that's not, that's because of Nicolas Cage and Holly Hunter's performances, which are just unbelievably pitched, you know, beyond, Beyond any kind of uh, restraint, but but it works so well. All of them, you know, <laughs> Francis McDormand, everybody in that film is just just on a very heightened level, which is hilarious. But also the Coens having that little, I think they were having a little kind of shot off with Raimi at the time of who can, there's that shot in Evil Dead when the, uh, the well, there's a shot in Raising Arizona where the camera goes up over the car and then into the window, into uh, Mrs. Arizona's mouth. And then in Evil Dead 2, Sam Raimi made the camera go through the back window of the car <laughs> as a kind of like, right, I'm going to go one better. But um, yeah, all that sort of exuberance. It's just a brilliant film, I think. Where is that baby? Where is he at? Go find him, honey. <laughs> Cut it out, Glenn. He's asleep right now. Oh, shit. I hope we didn't wake it. Can I just sneak a peek a loo? Come on, kids. Get away from Mr. McDonough's car. <laughs> What's his name? Uh, uh, hi, um, 
Hi, Junior, till we think of a better one. Well, why don't you call him Jason? I just love biblical names. If I had another little boy, I would name him Jason Caleb or Tab. <gasps> oh! He's an angel! He's an angel straight from heaven! No, honey. I had all my kids the hard way. You just gotta tell me how you got this little angel. What do you do? Just fly straight down from heaven. Well, uh... you're gonna send him to Arizona State. I love the fact that um, that Raimi and the Coens come out of the same creative swamp, that they were very much kind of, you know, of a piece. And, you know, Raimi, when he made Evil Dead, Evil Dead was banned under the Obscene Publications Act here, and people, you know, it was one of the BBFC examiners, when they first saw it, they said that they felt that they had been physically assaulted <laughs> by the film. And then... And then Raimi then went on to direct some of the biggest yeah. you know, franchise successes of all time. And then the Coens, meanwhile, go on to be the most celebrated, you know, uh, duo filmmakers of all. So it's kind of like we were right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we were all right. We were there first. Totally. And it, it's, it, that's, that's like saying being physically assaulted by a film is a bad thing. If, so, if you come out of a film that moved then surely that's, that's really worthwhile, you know, and rather than coming out of a film and going, yeah, that was OK, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so is Raising Arizona your, your Cohen's favourite, or are you just a lover of all the Cohen's? I do love the Cohen's. I would say Raising Arizona probably is just because of the affection I have for it. But, um, you know, I mean, you get into things like Lebowski and, um, you know, um, Blood Simple that, that, that have a joy to them for different reasons. Uh, they're just brilliant. They're consistent. They do have little dips now and again. I enjoyed the Netflix, um, um, the, the cowboy one, Buster Scruggs. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. With, with Tom Waits as the, yeah. uh, as the, as the prospector. Yeah, the indestructible uh, the, It's the... <laughs> and you go, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, it's like... <laughs> you can only understand him when he sings. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that film's that's a, that's a it's a really sharp. And you, you say they they have their ups and downs, but the thing is, you think, don't worry, there'll be another one along in a moment. Plus, the ones that you don't like the first time round, quite often, I've been told to go back and watch. Um, you know, I, I didn't like Big, Big Lebowski oh, really? the first time round. I was one of the people who thought, no, but, but you know, I, it, I I do accept now that it is it it is a classic in its you know in it in its own I way. I can say my favorite is still yeah. Blood Simple, just because. I remember seeing it on a double bill with The Evil yeah. Dead and just going, oh, my God, this is what the future of cinema yeah. looks like. It's raw and brilliant and, you know... It is an incredible sort of back catalogue that they have. It, it, it just... They're constantly changing their focus and their approach. It's not like they've, they've set on one thing which they do. They've never made another Looney Tunes comedy like Raising Arizona, and yet it was the pinnacle of that kind of filmmaking. You know, they could have made a bunch more of those films in that vein, but they just keep mutating and trying new things and yes sometimes some some are more successful than others but you've got to hand it to them for that kind of innovation yeah simon we've kept you for a half an hour thank you ever so much i could honestly i could shoot the breeze with you about movies for yeah, the rest of the day, but i know you have better things to do with your time thank you so thank you, much um i'm really looking forward to the mission impossibles which i love um i've just had so, i've had such good fun in the cinema with the mission impossibles yeah. uh, inheritance looks looks terrific uh the first two times that you're in the trailer i didn't recognize that it was you which is great yes. that's what you always you want to say oh wow yeah, yeah. and uh, and i'm really really looking forward to lost transmissions as well i know it's been delayed for a little bit but i'm really looking forward to that Excellent. and i hope uh I hope we all get to be back in cinemas at some point in the near future. Best of luck to you. Thank you ever so much for sparing the time to come and speak to Thanks, us. Thanks, Mark. My pleasure. Hold up. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. My thanks to Simon Pegg, and as I said, if you want to watch a cut-down video version of that interview, then go to the BFI channel on YouTube. Put in MK3D or BFI channel, you'll find it easy enough. My next guest is Shazia Mirza, a comedian and film fan who we asked to choose her guilty pleasures. She came up with some quite extraordinary choices, but I began by asking her about her own life and work. So, uh, welcome to, uh, I think this is now the third online MK3D. Obviously, we usually do these live at the BFI South Bank, but under current circumstances, everything is done from home. How have you been handling lockdown? What have you managed to do? Because obviously you were about, you were just at the beginning of a tour when all this started. Yeah. So, how's it been? Well, um, yeah, I, was, I did two tour dates and then the whole tour got cancelled. I was meant to be doing Soho Theatre all this week and obviously it's not happening. Yeah. But... Um, I've just been sitting at home getting fat, grey and hairy, really, uh, like everybody else. <laughs> what else is there to do, really? It's limited. Um, but I have, I finished writing my stand-up show, finished writing my book, and I recorded um, uh, a little film for the BBC last yeah. week about how to get humour in a pandemic. Um, that took me all week, obviously, because I was filming it myself. So... Little things take a lot of time. How are you dealing with the technology? One of the things that I've found is that um, everything that I would do that would normally take 15 minutes takes four hours because I like even just, just before we started, yeah. I'm going, I'm pressing this and I'm pressing yeah. that and uh, I'm doing that. Yeah. Are you similar? It's, it's all right for people who are 16 or 17 years old, but anybody above 20, I mean, it took me nine hours to upload uh, just a picture onto Instagram. It just wouldn't upload. And then I, I asked this 20-year-old kid to do it, and he did it in five minutes. Yeah. And I just, I, it's just 
it's we don't do this normally it's, in real life it's a really terrifying thing um that i mean i have uh, children they're grown now they're one of them's a teenager one of them's you know just out of teenagers but i i still like if i need if i if i need to upgrade my phone or something i just have to give it to them and say can yeah. you do it because it's like i haven't been given the keys to the magical kingdom of the internet yeah. i don't yeah. fully understand how it works and i to be honest with you I, I'm never going to. You don't care. I just, I just don't yeah. want my kids to leave home, because if they do, I won't be able to no, work no. the remote control. <laughs> I think we're too far gone. Anyone over twenty-five is too far gone to be wasting their life in this kind of thing. Now, where are you? You have a fantastic backdrop. Where are you at the moment? Where do we find well, you? Well, I'm at my parents' house in Birmingham. Everybody in Birmingham has this wallpaper. <laughs> it is the law. If any house in Birmingham has black wallpaper with red flowers, only at your parents' house, nowhere else. It's, 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 is there a particular name for that design? It's very striking. Yes, it's called Out of Date. That's what it's called. <laughs> now, whereabouts in Birmingham are you? I lived very, very briefly in Kings Heath. Um, oh, that's nice. Yeah, it was, uh, it was very nice. Lots of parks and everything. But I, I kind of I ended up living there by mistake. But it was very nice. And I, was, I always had this very romantic... Uh, idea about Birmingham because we used to drive through Birmingham on the way to Liverpool to go to the Isle of Man and I used to look oh. out and see the Rotunda yeah. and think you know that looks like the biggest city I've ever seen so which part of Birmingham are you in? Edgebaston. My parents live in Edgebaston around the corner from the cricket ground and it's really nice you know they've got loads of parks it's very green uh, it's it's quiet there's not many people around I mean it's very nice it's very quiet I just don't want to live here. I live in London. <laughs> <laughs> so did you did you just happen to be there when this all happened or did you you, you went No look, I didn't do look, I didn't do a Cummings. Um I just didn't do that. My eyes are fine. I didn't have to do an eye test. I what I did was I um just came last week actually, just last week, because I was in London and I just needed to go somewhere. So I came here for a bit. Yeah. Because okay. my tour's cancelled, there's nothing going on, so I thought I'd come and see my parents before they die. Now, um, th this show is nominally um, a, a film, uh, a film uh, show, and uh, mm. we asked you to think about some of the movies that were important to you. And mm. can you tell me about the first time you went to the cinema? The first time that I remember going to the cinema, I was about seven or eight years old, and my dad uh, took me and my brothers to watch um, Jungle Book. Uh, because that was the that was the biggest movie at the time. Every all the kids at school were watching Jungle Book. I wanted to watch it. Um, I'd had read books about it. I'd seen loads of cartoons on TV, and I just thought I've got to watch Jungle Book. Everybody's watching Jungle, Book. and that was the the film for kids to watch at that time. Did you love it? Oh my God, I loved it. I loved all the characters in it. Um, Mowgli. I had a picture of Mowgli by my bed after I'd watched uh, after I watched it in the cinema. I really thought that Mowgli was real, and one day I would meet, uh, you know, meet the, ba the baby, and we would be friends. Um, I really also, uh, to me, I know it's like a, an animation, but those the snake, uh, um, the panther, um, they the bear, they were real to me. They were, they were people to me. They yeah. were, they, as a kid, I know that it's an animation, but 
uh, they were real people, characters. Did you go and did you go and see the in inverted commas live action version that came out a few years ago, in which it was a real boil, though everything else was CG? Did you go and do that, or did you just keep the memory precious? No, I will always think of Jungle Book as that animation that I saw as a kid. And I don't think it will ever be as good because when you're a kid and you go to the cinema for the first time, it's a, you're transported to a different world. And that is your, that was my reality. That's how I'll always see it. I, and I don't want it to be ruined in a way because I loved it so much. Now, did you, did you get much cinema going in or were you somebody who was uh, much more a homebody? Well, when I was a kid, we didn't go to the cinema that much. Uh, it was considered to be a, a really adventurous and kind of extravagant thing to do, go to the cinema. Um, it was something we did like maybe once a year. It was that much of an event. Wow. Whereas now, when I grew up, I went to university. I was watching, you know, I used to watch films. I used to go to the cinema three, four times a week. Yeah. When I was, and, and even now in this lockdown, I've been watching film, I've been watching at least one film a day, sometimes two films a day. Now, what have you seen that you, that's, that's really struck you during that? Cause that's a great, that's a great way to spend lockdown. So what's, what's yeah. hit home for you? I wanted, I wanted to watch films that I hadn't either hadn't watched for a long time or things that I should have watched and I didn't watch. Yeah. Um, when they were out in the cinema. So I watched things like Taxi Driver, De Niro. I watched that the other night. Um, and I think I did watch that as a kid, uh, or, or, like maybe 10 years ago. But I watched it again. Uh, City of Angels, Notebook about Schmidt, Frankie and Johnny, Scent of a Woman. Wow. Um, as good as it gets. I love Jack Nicholson. Um, uh, I watched Barefoot in the Park. I found it difficult to watch. I kept falling asleep during it. And I thought, no, I must finish watching this film. So I'd get up the next day and make sure I finished watching it. Uh, Casino, uh, Something's Gotta Give, uh, Evelyn, Pursuit of Happiness. Uh, these are all films I've watched in lockdown. This is, that's an extraordinarily uh, wide range. Of what's, what's, yeah. what's, what's guiding the path? Is it just, you're just thinking, I haven't seen that before, I need to catch up with that. Have you, are you, are you, is there a theme through those? I mean, No. Um, sometimes um, my friends on Instagram, they'll, they'll say, oh, you should watch this. Or I, a lot of times I do go on other people's recommendations when they go, oh, this is a good film, you should watch this. And I think, oh, I haven't watched that. I'll, I'll watch it now. Um, so a lot of times, uh, they are stuff that, uh, people are, I see people online writing about on Instagram or Facebook, I've watched this, or you should watch this. And then I, you know, I do, I do go on recommendations like that. Okay. Now we asked you to choose a couple of movies that we, that we refer to here as guilty pleasures. Although I do understand that there is, there's no such thing as a guilty pleasure. There's just a pleasure or not. And you went for a couple of very surprising choices. So tell me what the first of your choices was. The first one is Bitter Moon by Roman Polanski. It's a 1992 film. And I don't tell many people this, but I can't stop watching it. I watch, I've watched it maybe about 50 times. I watch it um, at least once a year. I find it absolutely fascinating and awful. It's, it's an awful film. It's... Uh, it's um, uh, the women in it are portrayed um, horrifically, badly, needy, desperate, pathetic characters. Um, and I can't bear to watch it, but I can't stop watching it. So why, why do you, I, sorry, I know this, why do you keep going back to it? 
I think it's fascinating. Um, I think Roman Polanski's portrayal of women in this film is, um, is really fascinating. It says a lot about, I think, how he views women or um, he thinks that this is how women are or should be. And in this, in this film, um, it's awful how, how Mimi, the main character, is treated um, by Oscar, her husband. She's treated awfully. And there are many scenes in this which are, I find disturbing, but entertaining at the same time. Um, <laughs> Expl okay, explain that for me. Disturbing and entertaining at the same time. Tell me what you mean. It is. I think it's, it is. Um, I mean, at the beginning of the film, uh, this guy, Oscar, he is, uh, you know, he's coming up to his 40s. He wants to be a writer. He's a failed writer. He can't get any books published. He's clearly unhappy in his life. You know, he meets, this, he sees this girl, Mimi, on a bus. She's young. She's beautiful. You know, he's sexually attracted to her. And, you know, at the beginning of the film, there's a scene where they're having breakfast and they have an argument and she throws um, uh, milk at him, a carton of milk yeah. at him. And she, he grabs her by the hair and slaps her across the face three or four times and she lands on the floor. And um, it's not like pretending to hit her. You see him grabbing her by the hair and slapping her. Um, and you see his violence and uh, hatred towards her. And this continues throughout the film. There's many scenes where, you know, um, um, he abuses her badly. Uh, there's a scene where he's in hospital, he's broken his leg and she comes in and she takes his leg off um, the, the strap that it's on. So he becomes a paraplegic. So she has to look after him. He has to love her. She has to love him. Um, there comes a time, uh, there's a scene where he takes her on holiday, decides to take, to her, take her to the Caribbean and uh, he gets her on a plane and they're about to take off and he gets off the plane and leaves her to go on holiday by herself. Uh, there's another scene where he takes her to a party and uh, he flirts with other women uh, and humiliates her, laughs at her, laughs at her haircut, laughs at the way she looks, totally just takes the piss out of her. Um, there's another scene where she cooks him a chicken for dinner. And he says, oh, this is rubbish. It's burnt. It's awful. I'm going out. going to go and eat out. And I, I'll come back to the, to the same question. I mean, I said at the beginning of this, there's no such thing as a guilty pleasure, but I think actually you've changed my, uh, my definition of that. Uh, what are you getting out of watching it over and over again? Because it, when you're describing it, it just sounds like a catalogue of woe. I, I, I confess, I haven't seen Bitter Moon since it came out and nothing has ever made me think, I really want to go back and watch it again. Um, you know, I think a lot of um, people would say, especially now these days, you know, um, since um, the Me Too and, you know, the kind of uh, progression of modern feminism, a lot of women and a lot of men would say, we don't need to see this kind of thing or this is not nice to watch or this is misogynistic and this is anti-women. And it's all of those things, which is why I think we should see it. Roman Polanski's depiction of women is, 
is horrible, but I think uh, his misogyny is the greatest part of him. It's the greatest part of all his films, the way he views women. Um, it, it's dark and it's kind of rock bottom. It's nasty, it's mocking, it's dark. But there are men that view women like that. There are men that treat women like that. And I would rather see it than not see it. I, I would rather watch a film where a man is punching a woman in the face rather than a scene which alludes to a woman being beaten or a woman walks out the bedroom with bruises on her face. No, I, I, I want to see what that man does to that woman because that will affect me. And I want a film to affect me. Remember the carousel? Sure, I remember the carousel. I remember it like a trip to the dentist. Easy, easy. Ah! see me when I got out of intensive care. She said there's bad news and there's good news. You're paralyzed from the waist down, permanently. Okay, I said, let's have the good news. That was the good news, she said. The bad news is that from now on, I'm taking care of you. Now, your other choice is equally upbeat and lighthearted. Um, what was your second choice? Uh, it's a raging bull. A laugh, right? Um, but it's, it's, you know, Raging Bull. And this is also 1980. This is black and white. Um, it's that old, 40 years old. And I, I watched it the other night and I, I remember it. I remember it well. But, you know, you know De Niro, Pesci, um, Scorsese, it's, uh, it's magic. The three, three people together. It's, uh, it's always fireworks and it's, it's, the violence in this film is also the greatest part of this film. But it inspires me in my comedy. It's, this is not a funny film. Ne neither of these are funny films. But uh, this film inspires me in my comedy because um, Scorsese takes things to the edge. He takes things right to the edge here. Whether you like it or not, this is what he wants to show. This is what he wants to say. This is how he wants to portray his characters. And he doesn't hold back here. Right, and it's relentless. There is nothing, um, there is nothing, there's no redeemable characteristics about Jake LaMotta, the main character in this, De Niro. There is nothing likable about him. There is nothing nice about him. And it's relentless from the beginning. In the first, in one of the first scenes in the film, you see him um, grabbing the back of the neck of his first wife and pushing her into a room. Uh, over a fight about a piece of steak. You know this is going to be unreasonable right from the beginning. And this carries on throughout the film. Um, he punches his second wife in the face repeatedly. We see this a lot of times. And there's something really sad about this man, something really tragic about this main character that... Um, I just couldn't stop watching. There's a famous story that when um, when De Niro was trying to get the project off the ground and, and, and trying to get Scorsese to direct it, that they had taken it to, uh, they'd taken this uh, version of the script to a producer and the producer said, 
why would you want to make this film? It's about a cockroach. And De Niro had to say, no, it's not about that. But it was the, the reaction of the producer when they first read it is, why would I want to watch a film about this person? So what is it about the film that... Uh, that transcends that. I mean, you've talked about, you know, the, 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 the violence and the honesty of it. What is it about that, the film that transcends that? I, I don't think this film is mindless violence. I think it's very complex brutality in this film. This is a, a very complex person. Um, and I think um, you could say, you know, he, he's a boxer. It's a, he's an Italian-American boxer. You could say, you could view the film and think, oh, well, you know, well, Italian-Americans, that's how they treat their women, the same as an Irish family, an Asian family. But it's not about that. I think it's about the person that he is, you know, sexually insecure, um, um, paranoid. Um, I'm totally uh, unconfident about his body, his weight, and very uh, complex because as a comedian, I'm watching this and there is nothing likable about this man at all. It's a very sad character. And then later on in the film, towards the end, he tries to be a stand-up comedian. And, I'm, and after all you've seen this man do, he tries to be a stand-up comedian. And I was watching it thinking, a man that is this dark can never be this funny. He can never be that funny. Someone that is that awful can never be a comedian. I mean, comedians are many things, you know, they can be alcoholics, drug addicts, narcissists, liars, but inherently they are not bad people because <laughs> they are in the business of making people laugh. And if you're in the business of making people laugh, you're, you're trying to make people happy. And this is a man who beat both of his wives, punched them in the face, you know, abused his brother and his coach, um, you know, uh, slept with an underage girl. He's an awful person. So, so at, when he tries to get on stage and be a comedian, I thought, no. So where do you stand on, uh, on King of Comedy, in which the whole film is basically Robert De Niro as, uh, you know, as the, 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 the wannabe stand-up comic who wants it yeah. so much that he ends up kidnapping his hero? I mean, I've always thought that film was a, was a kind of a terrifying companion piece to Taxi Driver because he yeah. just reminds me of Travis Bickle. <laughs> but um, I, I felt that that was funny. It made me laugh in, in many ways. Um, there was nothing about Raging Bull that made me laugh. No. And, and, and some of Scorsese's films, especially when you've got the music going, he's always got, especially in this film, in Raging Bull, he's got some beautiful music. Uh, the, the theme tune to this is, is really beautiful. And that coupled with the violence... Uh, it made this film sad. There are some films where the music actually makes it funny. Um, and, and the violence is so horrific. There's something lighthearted that can make you laugh. And, and with The Entertainer, I did laugh at some of the slapstick. But there was, this was relentless, this film. There was nothing funny about it, which made it sad. I reminds me about two friends of mine. One was married and one was single. The married guy tells a single guy, oh, what's the matter with you? What's the matter with you? Look at me. And look at you. And look at me. 
Han var fuldt jord. Hvad er det? When I come home at night, my wife's at the door with a tall drink in her hand. And she gives me a nice hot bed. Then she gives me a nice rub down. Then she makes passionate love to me. Then she makes me a nice dinner. What more could you ask for? You ought to try that. The other friend says, hey, that sounds great. When does your wife get home? <laughs> no, I'm no Olivier. But if he fought Sugar Ray, he would say that the thing Ain't the ring, it's the play. So give me a stage where this bully can rage. And though I can fight, I'd much rather hear myself recite. I'm always analyzing. Uh, why is that funny? How did he get to? How did he get that? Why uh, to that point where it's funny? I mean, I have to say, the other night when I was watching Jack Nicholson in uh, Something's Got to Give, I mean, I laughed all the way through that. I don't associate him with funny films or being funny, but I laughed all the way through that. I thought he was hilarious in that. I remember watching As Good as It Gets um, the first time for the first time, and there is the there's the moment when. Um, uh, his neighbour tries to drop the dog off with him, and there's the whole thing thing about you know the, the why does the dog like him? Why doesn't it like yeah. the neighbour? And I thought yeah. what's really clever about this is that this is he, the, this character is completely unsympathetic, and yet he's really funny. And yeah. uh, and I thought that that was what was what was really smart about that was the character is horrible, and he's all the things that that his neighbour isn't, and yet the dog yeah. seems to love him. Oh, yeah, and I, and you think you know what? If the dog likes him, he must be all right. <laughs> there, must, there must be something all right about him. <laughs> That's right. If you can get if the dog. Are, now, are, are you an animal person? You have pets? Um, no, not really. No. Because life on the road, touring all the time. Yeah, I mean, you've really got to keep those animals alive um, when you have them. <laughs> you do, yes. Um, <laughs> that's a kind of minimum requirement. I would say keeping them alive, that's, that's, it, that's the lowest of the bars. I mean, I would love to have a little puppy, but you've got to feed it and you've got to take it out for walks mm. and stuff. <laughs> and, I, and, you, and I've thought about it. It's gone through my mind in the past where I've thought, you know, if I just go, you know, to Manchester for a couple of days, will he be all right? No, I don't, I don't want to come back and find an animal dead in my house. No, I think you're making an absolutely correct yeah. and informed decision. I think not coming home to find an animal dead in your house, is that's, that's definitely a, a tick that box. I don't want yeah. to do that thing. So look... Yeah. So what is going to happen now? Do you, I mean, obviously you said the, the, the tour obviously had to be uh, stopped because of, uh, because of COVID. Do you have plans for the, you know, for the coming months? What's, well, how does it look well, for Stan? Um, because this must be a very I, difficult time for comedians. I mean, I spent a, a year writing this show, which was called Coconut. And it was, you know, there was a lot of stuff about Brexit in it. Um, and there was stuff about reality TV, um, how I felt that reality TV was partly a cause for Brexit in the way that people voted for stuff mm. mindlessly. Um, and now I read through the show. I was reading through the show the other night and I thought, this is all irrelevant. Nobody cares. Unless I can relate all of this to coronavirus, what, else, what is there to say, really? I mean, who's going to care about this? Well, it's very much about the now. And I have to tailor this show and rewrite this show um, for the moment because so much has happened now that I, 
it's my show seems out of date and I only finished writing it a couple of months ago. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, to be honest with you, when we come out the other end of this, I don't think I want to talk about coronavirus. I kind of think I'm, we've all been talking about nothing else. I'd love to see the show you wrote about Brexit and reality TV, I mean, frankly. I will, re I will relate it to what's happened now. But also I found that during this pandemic, the public have been really funny. I have never laughed so much as I have done in this pandemic. People sending these funny videos and memes around. I've had so many every day. And they're not comedians, they're ordinary people. Yeah. And I thought, God, the British public, they are hilarious. Yeah, yeah. And of course, that amazing stand-up act that Dominic Cummings did when he said with a totally straight face that he was just testing his eyesight by driving... Testing his eyesight? His it was, I mean, I mean that was... The, 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 the totally straight way that he delivered that, you know, is almost like it's almost like you think, guy, he's not taking the piss. He, but obviously, he really didn't have to drive halfway up the M1 to test his eyesight. No, but, you know, but it was great. There was an announcement that they've now they've reopened car showrooms, and apparently you can take you you can test the cars, you know, on your own, which is great. It means that Dominic Cummings yeah. can test his his eyes and his car at the same time, which is I think I mean, that's kind of it's a win win the situation. Is, the, the Dominic Cummings eye tests that have come out since. <laughs> Barnard Castle from really big letters to really small letters. <laughs> this kind of thing is so funny. And, and just everything, everything about it, you know, staying alert, staying alert. I mean, what does that mean? I've been so alert. I haven't been able to sleep for three nights. I mean, well, how do you stay alert? Why is everyone just going around being alert? I mean, it was just joke after joke, really. No, no, this, stay alert just sounds like they're telling you to take speed. <laughs> You know, get into that kind of, that sort of slightly paranoid, like... Thing. Stay alert, stay alert. I mean, surprised anybody was sleeping. What does that mean, stay alert? I mean, it was so funny. Well, the whole of it. So it's okay. So it sounds like you've been productive. You know, you've you, you've been writing, you've been watching films, you've been thinking about the future. So it, it actually sounds like you, you had fa a fairly productive lockdown. I think, you know... Uh, comedians you have to be doing something that you think is gonna um you're gonna be able to use when you come out of here i got worried a few weeks ago when i thought the lockdown was going to end and i hadn't achieved that much so i suddenly started writing watching films making videos because i didn't want to feel like i'd wasted 10 weeks of my life i mean I, I, I interviewed Jason Isaacs recently and I asked him, you know, how, how has it been? And he said, well, you know, I, I finished writing this screenplay and, and the novel and, uh, and he said, and I've always wanted to learn Arabic. And so, you know, I've been learning Arabic and I said, really? He went, no, I haven't done anything at all. <laughs> you know, but he says, he said, everyone feels like they need to start by saying, well, obviously I've, you know, I've, I've made a, a model of the of Buckingham Palace out of matchsticks. No, no, no. All people have been doing has been cooking. And, and eating. Been, oh my God, this has been the big hit of the whole virus. Everybody's been cooking and everybody has been showing everybody else what they've been cooking, <laughs> filming it, putting it on, the, on social media. And you know what? Most of it looks awful. I mean, <laughs> some of it is awful. I saw Nigella tweeting, uh, going, God, that looks awful. And I, I just thought, but you know what? That's it's a sense of achievement. Oh, look, I baked a cake today. No, it doesn't matter how it looks or how awful it tastes. This is what I've done today. Yeah, well, Let me post that on social media. My, my, my sense of achievement has been when I put out the glass 
you know, on the cheese. Look how look how many bottles of white wine we've got through. Look, that's really that we had to put the hours in to get through that. My greatest achievement has been my recycling, um, putting the correct cartons in the correct boxes. Usually I just chuck it all into one box, but during this pandemic, I've actually put the glass and the cardboard and the plastic in their correct boxes. And I'm, I, I'm really proud of that. <laughs> well, you know, it just goes to show it's, it's never too late to learn a new skill. Listen, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on the show. I hope that when we have, um, when we're allowed back into the real world, uh, yeah. we can invite you back to come on in person rather than virtually. Um, and when you do come, I'd like you to bring some of that wallpaper with you because it's <laughs> it's going to live with me for a long time. <laughs> it's going to live with me as well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Lovely having Thank you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. My thanks to Shazia Mirza and Simon Pegg. If you've enjoyed listening to those interviews, then remember to go to the BFI channel on YouTube and search MK3D. Thanks ever so much for listening. If you like the podcast, remember to subscribe. Tell your friends, why not visit our Patreon page where there's loads and loads of extras, including exclusive video content. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Keep watching the skies. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Winning is an everyday mindset, and we're here to help. I'm Craig Robinson. Join me and Coach John Calipari for Ways to Win. We're kicking off during March Madness. Cal's Kentucky Wildcats are in the hunt. So throughout the tournament, I'm going to call up my friend to ask about his wins, losses, and especially what he's telling his players in the locker room. You got to win every day. Find the Ways to Win podcast anywhere you listen. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.